was day 183 of the expedition, Friday, March 29, 1776. The captain, Juan Bautista de Anza, and his men had raised a fallen cross planted the previous year and noted that it was, quote, visible a great distance into any vessel entering the port, end quote. At its foot, they left a statement claiming everything in sight for the king of Spain. But, as picturesque as the cross's location was, it wasn't exactly what Ansa was looking for, so they kept moving. Sending all but five of his men back to where they had camped a few days before, Anza headed toward the east. The priest of the party wrote that the area they traversed was wooded and fertile with plenty of ponds and springs. There were more than a few good places to establish a mission. After all, that's why they'd come all this way, to claim this massive bay for Spain and map out locations to expand the small chain of missions and settlements that were struggling on the coast of California. Though they would spend another week exploring, it was on that Friday that Anza and his company first identified what people visiting the Great Bay of San Francisco today still call the Presidio. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 10, California Dreamin'. The mission to open a land route to the Pacific coast from Sonora, which encompassed the Pimaria Alta portions of Arizona, is really the story of two men. The first is someone I introduced last week, Father Francisco Garces, the Franciscan friar who was installed at San Javier del Bac following the expulsion of the Jesuits from the Spanish Empire in 1767. Zealous, tenacious, and capable, Garces was noted for his love of working with the natives under his charge. He sat cross-legged with them on the ground, ate native foods, and learned how to speak the Pima language. He even scandalized his superiors by reporting that curious natives had lifted the skirt of his habit to verify for themselves whether he was a man or a woman. Though only 30 when he arrived in Arizona, he gathered the affectionate nickname of Old Man from his charges. There are plenty of Indians, he wrote simply about his mission. I like them, and they like me. Another friar, who didn't see the appeal of Garces's assignment, is reported to have said, quote, God has created him, as I see it, solely for the purpose of seeking out these unhappy, ignorant, and rustic people, end quote. Those on Javier del Bac, and really all the Pimaria Alta, now had a priest well-suited for it. The area continued to face considerable challenges. Still harassed by Apaches, the Subaipuris, who you might remember from last week, had moved from the San Pedro River Valley to the Tucson area just a decade earlier and resisted being moved into the Santa Cruz River Valley, finally decided that maybe there were better prospects to be had. In 1770, the tribe began to talk about moving north to settle along the Gila River. However, fearful of losing this buffer tribe, the Spanish acted quickly. And this brings us to the second man who is so important to the looming trek to settle California, none other than our old friend, Anza. Now the captain of the Tubac Presidio for a full decade, Anza rode north and persuaded the Sobaipuris to instead build defensive earthen fortifications. The tribe agreed to this plan, but also asked for a church to be built. Father Garces fully supported this latter part, even pledging wheat for the construction workers. These two projects are possibly the first real structures to go up in the place that Garces was now styling as 
San Agustin de Tucson. The fortifications would prove to be a good idea, as less than a year later, on February 1st, 1771, the Apaches came down and attacked. Two boys were killed in the skirmish. Anza also would remain on offensive campaigns against these perennial foes. In fact, just after telling the Sobaipuris to build fortifications, he led a two-week campaign that resulted in the death of two men, two women, and the capture of seven Apache children. Enraged, they struck back by hitting Sonoida and killing 19 people, including 11 children. In October 1772, Apaches managed to steal more than 100 horses from Tubac itself, killing a soldier in the process. Shortly thereafter, they stole more than 250 animals from the Presidio at Ternate, south of the current international border. All these embarrassments were a big part of the reason why the Dahona Odom, whom the Spanish called Papagos, declined invitations in the early 1770s to settle at the missions or rancherias. Quite simply, they had better luck protecting themselves and fighting back against the Apaches from their desert homes than the Spanish from their presidios. It was a fair point, though Ansa could point to 14 separate campaigns against various hostile tribes and to having killed 115 natives himself. Despite the odds, he was fighting the Empire's fight, an act of loyalty that earned him a promotion to the rank of captain of the military cavalry in October 1770. Despite the near-constant bombardment by hostile natives, Garces did not wish to stay holed up in his mission. And this is where historians start making comparisons to Kino. Garces is going to take on several explorations of greater Arizona that we'll talk about in coming weeks. But for now, he has reached at least as far as the Gila River. Early state historian James H. McClintock states that the friar was in the habit of taking with him a large crucifix, which he would kiss often to install curiosity in the natives he encountered. He's also said to have carried a large two-sided banner. On one side was a depiction of the Virgin Mary. On the reverse was a representation of the condemned souls in hell. If he encountered natives he did not know and they seemed friendly, he carried the banner with the Virgin Mary showing. If they proved hostile, then he would show them the fire and brimstone. In 1771, Garces undertook a journey westward with only a few native guides, which eventually led him all the way to the Colorado River and the Quechan tribes. He found their leader, known as the Wheezy One, or, here we go, Ole Kuotekiebe, if I'm even close to pronouncing that correctly, and his people amenable to his message. Mercifully for me, this chief will one day accompany Anza to Mexico City, where he'll be baptized and given the Christian name of Salvador Palma. The majority of my sources only refer to him by this name, so from here on out, I'm going to simply call him Palma. Garces's successful visit to the Quechans came at the right time to coincide with a greater Spanish aim for years, the colonization of California Alta. Of course, the Spanish had known and sailed the coast of California for centuries. However, the prevailing winds and currents of the Pacific were against any ship trying to head north from New Spain. Even under the best of conditions, sailing north was an arduous task that had a tendency to rapidly dwindle provisions. One source even claims that it took longer to sail up to California than it did to cross the Atlantic back to Spain. King Carlos III and his counselors really, really wanted to settle California 
for two important reasons. The first harkens back to a desire that was now centuries old, getting goods from the Philippines to New Spain. The theory was that a ship could cross the Pacific at a high latitude to avoid other prevailing winds and currents that made sailing directly to New Spain difficult. Ships could then make land for repair and resupply at a place on the California coast such as Monterey. It could then sail with the winds and currents down to Acapulco before finding other helpful currents and winds on a more southerly route back to the Philippines. However, this was easier said than done. With little hope of resupply by sea, earlier stabs at settlements in California just couldn't make it. As one historian noted, the entire California coastline had been claimed in 1542. Actual settlement had waited until 1769 or 1770. The second reason is Spain desperately wanted to stake a claim and keep all those other European powers from getting in on the action along the Pacific. Part of the reason for the push to again settle California in the 1760s was due to the presence of Russian sea otter hunters coming down from Alaska. That just would not do at all. But the bigger, scarier boogeyman that kept the Spanish crown awake at night was the British. As I noted in an earlier episode, the other European powers sort of laughed off Spain's claim to the entire New World. And by this period, there had been English settlers along the Atlantic coast for more than a century and a half. What's worse, Great Britain was in the habit of making territorial grabs. It tried to nab Florida during the chaos of the War of the Spanish Succession, and would make a few other attempts. Spain finally had to cede Florida in 1763 after allying itself against Great Britain in the Seven Years' War. The North American theater of that war is what we in the United States called the French and Indian War, by the way. Now, Spain is going to get Florida back after siding with some plucky tax dodgers in the British colonies when they declare independence, but in the late 1760s and early 1770s, Spain was in full-on can't-give-anything-else-to-the-British mode. So that meant, at all costs, Spain could not allow the British to get even a fingerhold on California. By the early 1770s, there were presidios at San Diego and Monterey, and some missions running up the Pacific coast. But with resupply by ship a non-starter, the golden ticket was finding a land route. And this is where Garces and Anza come together, because in 1774, they undertook a mission to find such a route. For the record, I don't have a clear understanding of the entire sequence of events. Some sources say Anza was ordered to break this overland trail. Others say he requested permission to do it. This ties back to what we discussed a couple episodes back, that his father was interested in doing the exact same thing before his untimely death. Another source points out that Garces, who had correspondence with many of the movers and shakers of New Spain, floated the idea. Whichever way it came about, and whose idea it ultimately was, the mission was greenlit. This task was held by the presence of Sebastián Tarabel, a Cochamín native of California who had fled from the San Gabriel mission just northeast of Los Angeles. Sebastián had made it all the way to Altar in Sonora, proving that a land route was possible. He had ran away with his wife and another man, both of whom had perished in the desert crossing. Sebastián had made it to the Quechan, and Palma realized he was a deserter and was therefore the perfect gift to give to the Spanish. Instead of being punished, 
the runaway who had made the very crossing the Spanish now wanted to accomplish was immediately pressed into service. And this becomes the first in a long-running series of disagreements between Ansa and Garces. The priest, having made his own investigations among the natives he taught, thought it would be better to try and cross the Colorado north of its junction with the Gila to avoid some of the worst bits of desert. Ideally, he would like to cross at the latitude of the mission of San Luis Obispo in California, which correlates roughly to modern Interstate 40. This route would also make it easier to connect Sonora with New Mexico and, you guessed it, meant more contact with the Hopis, because we haven't given up on that yet. Anza shot down the idea, intending to follow Sebastian's route. After all, the Cochami man had made the journey in a matter of weeks, so it couldn't be that bad. Additionally, the southern road, dipping into Sonora and the outpost there, offered places to resupply. Finally, he pointed out, the northern route meant dealing with Apaches. Anza's going to win this argument, and though scrupulously polite and accommodating in their official accounts, there was a deep rift between the captain and the priest. The grudge was an old one, as both seemed to have stepped on the other's toes frequently when making suggestions about the best policies for the Pimaria Alta. As an example, following the expulsion of the Jesuits, the reform-minded Carlos III turned over the financial side of the missions to secular leaders. The Franciscans complained that this policy robbed them of the same benefits their predecessors had enjoyed and inhibited their ability to save souls. They eventually won this fight and were once again given unfettered access to mission resources in 1769. Anza had opposed this reversal. It's possible he, like other Spaniards in the area, had hoped to have more free access to land in order to increase his own holdings. On a less selfish level, the captain also seems to have come to the conclusion that the mission policy was a failure. In Anza's mind, the crash in mission populations wasn't solely because of disease or Apache attacks. It's because the mission policies stressed priests ruling with supreme authority and separating natives from their Spanish neighbors. And as we've seen, this has backfired numerous times. As he outlined in a 1772 letter, Anza favored a more nuanced approach. He wanted true assimilation through basically overwhelming presence. To have Spaniards working side by side with the natives, speaking Spanish to their children. He encouraged economic ties with the natives. Have the local tribes get jobs, actual jobs with, you know, wages, to become part of the Spanish economic system. This, he felt, would better accomplish turning the natives into true subjects of the Spanish crown. All of this back and forth tension is just sort of floating out there as the expedition moves forward, so keep that in mind. The group left Tubac on Saturday, January 8, 1774. In addition to Anza, Garces, and Sebastian, there were 20 soldiers, another priest, servants, and muleteers, making for 34 men altogether with 140 mounts. The route initially headed south, not west, dipping down the Santa Cruz Valley from Tubac to Sarik and Altar in modern-day Sonora, before starting to head northwest and reaching the mission at Caborca. From there it followed, more or less, the current route to in Mexico, heading up to the international border. 
After 20 days, the group had reached the area of Sonoida, the Mexican city sitting across from Arizona's Lukeville off of State Route 85. The next week, however, would be a running search for water, with Anza splitting off with an advance party to look for good spots. Though a Tejono Oda messenger brought news of possible rebels among Palma's people, Anza determined to keep moving forward, cautiously, and meet with Palma before taking any sort of action. It was on day 30, so February 6, 1774, that the group finally reached the Gila River, just before its junction with the Colorado. Palma rode out with a contingent to greet Ansa and Garces and calm his people's fears. Ansa and Garces would spend several days fostering good relations. Ansa would even go through a small ceremony of recognizing Palma as the leader of these people, which the Spanish called the Yumas, and presented him with a large silver coin on a red ribbon bearing the effigy of Carlos III. As they moved through Quechan territory, Anza would distribute gifts of glass beads and tobacco to literally hundreds of curious natives who flocked around them. He was generally favorably disposed towards the Quechans, considering them one of the most quote-unquote civilized natives, read the most like Europeans, he had encountered. The expedition forded the Gila before its junction with the Colorado, then crossed the larger river itself and camped at the future site of Fort Yuma. The next leg of the journey was considerably harder, and one historian even titles it 10 Days to Nowhere. The party had moved down the western side of the Colorado some distance before finally having to turn west. But Sebastian did not recognize this route. Garces, who had visited the area two years beforehand, wanted to head immediately west towards a place where he was sure there was water. Anza, however, decided to trust two native guides he had found and struck northwestward. Five days after leaving the Quechan villages, the group was in a rough spot. Half the animals had to be unloaded because fatigue was setting in due to a lack of good pasture and water. Anza started thinking about sending half the expedition back to the Colorado, but Garces objected strenuously to that plan. The priest, meanwhile, was still sure that they were maybe two leagues away from the watering hole he knew of, called San Jacome. The group turned south to head there, realizing that the sand dunes to their immediate west were, in their current state, an impenetrable obstacle. However, finding San Jacome turned out to be harder than expected. Garces even took off with a group of soldiers to locate it one night after the main party had camped, but eventually they returned empty-handed. With animals now dying and water running scarce, Anza made the difficult decision to head back toward the last reliable source they had found. So, on day 42... February 18th, exactly one week after leaving the Colorado, the party wandered back to its banks, exhausted, thirsty, and needing a new plan. When they embarked again on March 2nd, the expedition took a more southerly route, which brought them towards Mexico's Laguna Salada, southwest of Mexicali. The desert crossing was the hardest part of this first expedition, and highlights what a formidable task this actually was. In our modern-day world of GPS, highways, and, heck, actual maps, it's hard to truly imagine how hard trail-breaking is. But for Ansa and his company, they only had a vague idea of geography and distance and the word of often unreliable native guides. And to paraphrase Reuben from Ocean's Eleven, of course, lest we forget, you're still in the middle of the expletive-deleted desert. I'm going to mostly skim from here on out, because we have a whole second expedition we have to get to today. 
But on day 60, so March 8th, Sebastian finally recognized the pass that he had taken from San Gabriel. Anza wrote in his journal, quote, This promises us that our expedition will not be frustrated, end quote. The party worked north, heading into California's Borrego Valley and then into Coila Valley. Of course, these places in California seemed like paradise compared to their desert wanderings. No longer was finding water for their horses a problem. If anything, too much water, making their path muddy or swampy, would be the next ongoing issue. They proceeded into the San Jacinto Valley, with the snow-capped San Bernardino Mountains looming to the northeast. Here, Garces noted blankets that also appeared in Tubac and elsewhere in the Pimaria Alta, giving a rare glimpse into the extent of native trading networks. They forded the San Gabriel River and arrived at the mission on day 74, March 22nd. The expedition would stay here until April 9th, but Garces points out that they had, quote, brought need to a house of want, end quote. The mission was lacking in supplies, with everyone limited to a ration of three corn tortillas a day, with whatever wild herbs they could find. A supply ship was supposedly coming to San Diego, so Garces set out in that direction, bearing letters from Ansa about the expedition and its importance. With limited supplies, Ansa decided to press onward to Monterey with six soldiers on April 9th. He left while Garces was still in San Diego. He would not return until April 11th. Anzo left orders for the priest to return to the Colorado. In a huff about being left behind, Garces proposed breaking a new trail to San Diego instead, but was rebuffed by the soldiers who would not disobey their captain. Meanwhile, Anza made it to Monterey in nine days, arriving on April 18th after passing along the coast near Santa Barbara and visiting the mission of San Luis Obispo. On April 26, Garces and his company had made it back to the Colorado River, where they ended rumors that the party had died somewhere out in the trackless desert. By May 10th, Anza joined them, having found a more direct route to the Colorado. And 17 days after that, on May 27, 1774, 140 days after starting, Ansa was back in Tubac. The project had been a success. Thanks to a friendly relationship built with Palma and the Quechins, there was now a land route to California. Anza didn't stay long in Tubac. Per his instructions, he rode south to meet with the Viceroy himself in Mexico City to report on the expedition. This is going to be delayed just slightly because he received other orders to help put the captain of the Terranate Presidio in Sonora under house arrest. This captain also happened to be the husband of Ansa's niece, who had abandoned her after he discovered she was pregnant after having an affair. As you can imagine, this caused a huge rift between the families, and it's entirely possible the charges came about because of a vendetta from the Ansa clan. Finally, though, in August 1774, Ansa was able to head to Mexico City. Though later enemies would paint Sebastian as having done the lion's share of the work to break the 600 miles of new trail, Anza was greeted as a hero in the capital, so much so that he was promoted to lieutenant colonel and given a new task. He had shown that supplies and colonists could march overland to California. Now, he needed to do just that. The viceroy wanted him to march to Monterey with settlers, plus find suitable sites for a presidio on this apparently great bay up there, that was being called San Francisco. This is where you get the contemporary detractors seeking to discredit Ansa. Among them were Garces, who was infuriated that the now lieutenant colonel had pretty much ignored his advice on everything. 
He was joined by Francisco Antonio Crespo, governor of Sonora, Sinaloa, who also preferred Garces's northern route and was angling to lead the colonization expedition himself. The third was a man with the very un-Spanish name of Hugo O'Connor. We'll dive deeper into O'Connor, or O'Connor as the Spanish knew him, next week, but suffice it to say he wasn't a fan of using perfectly good soldiers from settled areas to escort people to the middle of nowhere. California Alta was also well beyond the plan envisioned by the Marquis de Ruby, which we will also talk about next week. But as much as these three conspired, Anza had the confidence of the viceroy and ultimately the king himself. In November 1774, an official decree went out stating that Anza would lead the colonization expedition to California. Full stop. The now lieutenant colonel would spend the next year busily organizing the project, mostly out of Horcasitas, just northeast of Hermosillo. On Friday, September 29, 1775, an incomplete caravan sent out from Orcasitas to Tubac, with the main company arriving in mid-October. But on October 23, 1775, the caravan, consisting of some 240 men, women, and children, started lumbering north from Tubac. On the first night out, one of the women went into labor and died during childbirth. When the party pulled into San Javier del Bac, the child was baptized. Father Pedro Font, the main priest assigned to the expedition, also took the opportunity to solemnize three marriages within the company. Heading north from Tucson, a number of mule drivers suddenly deserted. Some of these were returned to the party by friendly Akamel Odom and were promptly sentenced to be lashed. Anza used the opportunity on Sunday, October 29th, so less than a week into the long haul from Tubac, to remind everyone what was expected of them. Among his remarks, he specified that he would not tolerate, quote, rape of the native women and stealing from or threatening the natives with force, except in self-defense or under specific orders, end quote. Furthermore, he stressed, quote, dealing respectfully with the Gentiles, whom we are trying to attract to the true religion and the dominion of his majesty, end quote. Finally, there was a reminder of, quote, the example we must give by our own conduct and attendance at the religious services during our trip. End quote. The party continued northward, seeing everywhere the depredation of Apache attacks, while being welcomed by the Odom people whom they encountered. They passed by the ruins of the Casa Grande, and Font even records the stories told by the natives in the area about its origins. However, while he cheerfully passes the tales along, Font is more than a little condescending towards what he dismisses as, quote, a whole lot of nonsense mixed with some confused Christian doctrine, end quote. By November 1st, the party crossed the Santa Cruz just south of its junction with the Gila, heading directly west toward the modern location of Gila Bend. The expedition would be delayed several days due to a sickness that struck the camp, which was later found to be from the water of a pond that they had stopped by. Throughout the month of November, they followed the Gila downstream, occasionally crossing the river for better campsites or pastures for the animals. During all this time, Anza and Font recorded the various tribes they encountered. Despite Font's revulsion at the natives, he often notes how ugly or smelly they are, these encounters were mostly positive. Anza distributed regular gifts of beads and tobacco, and smugly notes that these tribes lived in peace with each other, undoubtedly because of the orders he gave the Quechans in 1774 that the king wanted them not to fight. On November 27th, just a few days from the junction with the Colorado, 
the company met again with Palma. The Quechan leader again embraced the Spanish warmly and with much pageantry. Palma and the leader of another tribe even made a great show of declaring that they were now friendly and wouldn't make war upon each other because the king commanded it. Anza took the opportunity to again declare Spain's approval of Palma and gifted him the dress uniform of an officer to show off his rank and position. On November 30th, the expedition crossed the Colorado and spent a few days resting. They also had to construct a couple huts. You see, even though he was loath to hit the trail with Anza again, Garces has been on this trip. But the humors were the end of the line for Garces and his fellow priest Father Tomas at charge. The two were going to stay to keep preaching and exploring. I should mention that here we also get more complaints against Anza by Font. Some of these are not new, namely that Anza isn't willing to entertain the priest's idea for the expedition. He also complains that Anza is taking lead in distributing gifts to the natives and not allowing the priest to do it first. The list does get increasingly petty from there. Now, I'm not going to give Anza a total pass on these complaints. While it's true Font is a novice explorer and gets riled up over things like the men drinking alcohol, it is telling that Anza would be at loggerheads with both priests sent to accompany him to California. He could be stubborn, single-minded, and too secretive for his own good. Fortunately, by the end, Font and Anza would be reconciled. We can chalk most of this friction up to two strong-willed, idea-filled humans being forced to travel together. By December 4th, so 67 days since starting from Horcasitas, the expedition began moving again. The route was similar to the one from 1774, except a tad more direct as they now knew the location of water sources. Plus, they didn't need to spend 10 days wandering around in the desert. As they crossed into current Mexico and back up into California, the main problem actually became the cold. For most of December, bitter winds blew, accompanied by strong, unexpected snowstorms and even an honest-to-goodness blizzard. Many of the horses, mules, and cattle, though no longer in danger of dying from thirst, couldn't take the extreme temperatures. Some of the expedition even got frostbite. Though my favorite anecdote is when Font woke up one morning to find that the uh, contents of his chamber pot were frozen solid. By January 4th, 1776, or Day 98, after crossing a swollen Santa Ana River, the party made it again to San Gabriel. However, things were not well. Anza learned of an insurrection of the natives at San Diego in November, and that there were fears of a similar uprising at San Gabriel. Waiting for him at the mission was Captain Francisco Javier Rivera y Moncada, the military governor of California, who was riding down from Monterey. Rivera y Moncada, strapped for fighting men, requested Anza and his troops come with him to put down any lingering rebellion. The request was open-ended as to how long he would need help, which will become a major friction point going forward. But for now, Anza readily agreed. Leaving most of the settlers in the care of a trusted subordinate, Lieutenant Jose Joaquin Moraga, the fighting force started south on January 7th. However, after more than a month, the rebellion had kind of reached a stalemate, with unbaptized natives hiding out in the hills. In late January, Anza began talking to Rivera y Moncada about continuing on with his mission, but, you know, leaving some soldiers behind in San Diego just to help you out. Rivera y Moncada was opposed to the idea, saying that the most important thing to Spain now, at this very moment, was pacifying all of California. 
It didn't help, either, that Rivera y Moncada had repeatedly voiced his disagreement about establishing any colony near the San Francisco Bay. Anza originally complied because, hey, Rivera y Moncada is the guy in charge around here. However, he couldn't help but think that the governor was blowing things a little out of proportion. The situation changed when word reached them from San Gabriel that everyone was on half rations. Despite the mission being moved to a better site between 1774 and 1775, the addition of so many mouths to feed was still stressing local resources. Finally, it was decided that Anza and his party should head north and that he would rendezvous with Rivera y Moncada in San Gabriel after completing his mission. Though this plan was agreed to by both sides, Font writes, quote, From that night on, Captain Anza was forever out of grace with Captain Rivera, so strongly opposed was he to that new establishment. End quote. On February 12th, Anza was back at San Gabriel and found everyone dejected and demoralized from weeks of inactivity. Surprising to the usually popular captain, the men were starting to get mutinous, and a small group had even deserted, taking needed supplies and the best horses with them. A detachment, led by Lieutenant Moraga, set out to find the deserters and bring them back, but that meant more good animals were away and the journey was delayed yet again. It also didn't help that around this time, Anza became violently sick. Font attributes this illness to all the stress on the captain and even what we might call depression, though he also dives into blaming the mission's native cooks, who he styles as filthy young men who served disgusting fare that was, quote, as vile and dirty as themselves, end quote. Ah, we do love good old entrenched racism in historical sources. When the search party failed to return after several days, Ansa knew that they couldn't afford to wait. On February 21st, day 146, the group started slowly making its way north again. They reached San Luis Obispo on March 2nd after heading up what is essentially US 101 through Santa Barbara and then up the coast before cutting inland. The weather was cold and damp and the ground swampy, making for rough going. The only positive, it seems, is they encountered natives about whom Font actually had good things to say. They didn't stay at San Luis Obispo long before continuing north again. The mood was brightened a bit when Moraga rejoined the party and reported that three of the deserters had been found and sent to Rivera y Moncada for punishment. On March 10th, they finally reached Monterey. After the usual whining and dining, saying of mass and toasting to the expedition, and giving more time for Anza to recover, it was finally time to complete the mission. On Friday, March 22nd, 1776, Anza, with a small company, including Font, set out to look at the Great San Francisco Bay. They went up the Santa Clara Valley, past modern Gilroy, Santa Clara, and Cupertino. By March 28th, they had made it up the peninsula where San Francisco now sits. And that brings us to where we started today's episode. The next day, they found a good spot to start a mission, called Dolores, because they incorrectly thought it was Good Friday, called Viernes de Dolores in Spanish, though its actual name was Mission San Francisco de Asís. As they retraced their steps south, Font was taken by a tall and straight pine tree, which he refers to in his notes as the High Pole, or, as we know it today, Palo Alto. Now, the party is going to reconnoiter the Bay Area for several days, making its way past San Pablo and Susun Bays, before heading south again. Along the way, they also found a good spot for a settlement that would be dubbed San Jose de Guadalupe, or simply San Jose. 
Please note that Anza and his group merely scouted out these areas. It would be up to Lieutenant Moraga and the settlers to actually, you know, build them up. By April 8th, Anza and his group made it back to Monterey. There was a delay of several days to rest and allow Anza to recover from a pain that had set into his groin and leg. He also sent word to Rivera y Moncada to meet him in San Gabriel by the end of the month. He was still worried about trying to return to Sonora without permission from the highest military officer in California. So, with the much more manageable company of 29, including himself and Font, he set off toward San Gabriel on April 14th. However, the experience of leaving the settlers behind became emotional enough that Anza, who usually just stuck to the facts in his journal, records, quote, As I mounted my horse on the plaza, the people whom I led from the country to which I am now returning gathered there as if by common accord. Most of them came with tears in their eyes. I was overwhelmed by their show of affection, embraces, wishes for my happiness, and praise that I do not deserve. End quote. While he started off with such good feelings, the next day brought some bad news. Writers reached his group with word from Rivera y Moncada. The soldier in charge requested a private meeting with Ansa, where he laid out a delicate story about how the governor was almost crazed with anger. Rivera y Moncada, he was informed, had been excommunicated after violating sanctuary to punish one of the rebels involved in the San Diego uprising. The messenger also related how the governor did not bother reading anything Anza had sent him since March and continued to vehemently disagree with any plans to establish settlements near the San Francisco Bay. Rivera y Moncada had always enjoyed good rapport with his men, so it was a sign of how bad things had gotten when the messenger asked to be reassigned to Anza's command. Anza and Rivera y Moncada would have a brief, icy meeting on the road the very next day after this, but with nothing resolved. What followed was a bizarre series of correspondence, with Anza and Rivera y Moncada trading letters, offering to meet at various locations to discuss their positions. But Anza may have generally thought the governor had lost his mind and actually went out of his way to avoid meeting with him in person. Though both were at the mission of San Gabriel in late April and early May, Rivera y Moncada refused to come out of his room and meet with Anza. So on May 3rd, the group started south again eventually reaching the Colorado River by May 11th. Here, Chief Palma of the Questions expressed a desire to go with Anza to Mexico to meet with the Viceroy personally. Though told he would be gone for a year on such a trip, Palma was still eager. As they set out to cross a flooded Colorado River, Anza makes an interesting point. He notes that with the Yuma as their allies, crossing the river is easy. But if the Yumas were ever made into enemies crossing the Colorado would be near impossible. It's an almost prophetic statement, as less than six years later, this very thing would happen. But that is a story we'll get to in a couple weeks. Because next week, we need to rewind a decade and discuss the political changes that were happening in New Spain during the 1760s and 1770s. We'll also follow up with Garces in his never-ending quest to reach the Hopi. Finally, we'll also learn that Anza's Presidio at Tubac, his home for 15 years, had, in his absence, been moved away. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.